I truly don't care where the cure comes from, but I don't want it locked up in a silo somewhere waiting for a university or a pharmaceutical company or an independent researcher to take credit for it. I just want to get it out into the field, tested, proved, and then into people's bodies so that we can rid this world of ALS. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. May is ALS Awareness Month, a time to spread the word about our fight to make ALS a livable disease, all while continuing the search for a cure. Recent data indicates that more than 30,000 Americans are living with ALS. And as many listeners know, someone is diagnosed with the disease every 90 minutes. And while there is no cure, there is hope. The ALS drug development pipeline has never been more robust. And since the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge raised awareness of our fight, more people have access to multidisciplinary clinical care proven to extend life. And funding for ALS research continues to expand every year. But we need even more help to create a world without ALS. So this month, let's come together to tell the world that we need them to do whatever it takes to find new treatments and cures, to optimize current treatments and care, and to prevent or delay the harms associated with ALS, because it will take all of us to end ALS forever. My guest this week knows our fight all too well, as you will soon hear. Scott Kaufman is the chairman and CEO of MDC Partners, an advertising agency and marketing services holding company. He's also the former chairman of several venture-packed internet companies. Scott has more than 30 years of corporate executive and board leadership experience with both public and private companies. And earlier this year, he became chairman of the ALS Association Board of Trustees. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. My pleasure, Jeremy. Good afternoon. Yeah. Well, um, before we get into the nitty gritty of all of this, for folks who you know maybe weren't around or weren't watching the um, We Can't Wait Action Meeting or have heard you talk about this issue in the past, listeners who may not know who you are, can you just introduce yourself and, and let us know a little bit about your connection to the ALS community? Sure. I'm Scott Kaufman, I'm coming to you from sunny Palo Alto, California. And I joined the board of the ALS Association six years ago. I've chaired the audit committee and the communications committee, and uh, I've just completed my second month as the chair of the National Board of Trustees of the ALS Association. But as I like to say, my more, most important role is as a caregiver to my son, Stephen, who was diagnosed 10 years ago at the age of 27. In fact, he will celebrate, if that's a term we can even apply here, uh, his 10-year anniversary of the diagnosis uh, this June 6th. Uh, now, when I'm describing what has happened to our family, I like to leave people on a high note. So I mentioned that my son lives five doors down from me uh, with my daughter-in-law who fell from the heavens eight years ago and my grandson. They made me a grandfather four years ago. And then I sometimes have, I see the quizzical looks on people's faces, those that understand what it means to have ALS. And I explain how there are two major systems in the human body, the motor neuron system, which ALS impacts dramatically, and the cardiovascular system, which it does not. So even though Stephen is late stage, meaning a machine breathes for him and a tube feeds him, and he, if on an ALS, FRSR score probably is about a one. He has a little motion in his neck. We put a switch right behind his ear. He's able to command all of his vast multimedia arrays, watch all the sports there is. The Golden State Warriors are giving us a lot to cheer for. We were season ticket holders for 20 years. 
and of course, uh, being a typical ALS patient with a uh, you know, sound mind, he is a living testament to our mantra these days of making ALS a livable disease. You mentioned your tenure on the board. You've been part of this community for some time. You've been, uh, as you said, on the board for some time. What have you seen over your years of service and, and your time uh, you know, as a, as a caregiver that suggests to you that there's momentum, that we're moving in the right direction, that we're seeing progress or that progress is on the horizon? Yeah, and I, I bring a healthy skepticism to the table. You know, it's been eight plus decades since Lou Gehrig called himself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Ten years ago, when Stephen was diagnosed, I mean, the first reaction a family has is you kind of curl up in a corner and cry. And then I realized that wasn't going to move the needle. So I started looking around and I was somewhat dismayed at how disjointed and fragmented the community, as you've described it, was so much so that I was frustrated and decided to create my own foundation. And uh, with the appropriate level of naivete and arrogance, um, I, I went about uh, founding a 501c3. I got permission from Lou Gehrig's estate to call it the Iron Horse Foundation. And Stephen was born in New York City. He, was, he grew up a Yankee fan. Lou Gehrig's nicknamed the Iron Horse until Cal Ripken came along. You know, he held the record for the most number of consecutive games played until he realized that there was something going wrong with his body. Right. And um, at the time, I was running a global advertising agency holding company. So we had tremendous resources. And they helped me set up the organization, a beautiful website, and starting to talk to some of our clients about cause-related marketing. And then the ice bucket challenge hit. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of money uh, coming into the community, uh, the majority of it going to the ALS Association. And so I decided that I could be of more value there. And over the six years since I joined the ALS Association, and because of some of the pro bono work that our, our agencies had done on behalf of a wide swath of the major players, including ALS TDI, Answer ALS, Team Gleason, and the like, I have felt a closer galvanizing of the community, a desire to share resources, particularly data. And there are those among us that believe that the cure is here. It's on this planet with us but probably an exercise in big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence. And the only way you're gonna get there faster is if you pool all of the resources and all of the data and that you kind of divide and conquer. And so I've seen a greater willingness now for the organizations to collaborate, whether it's on different research initiatives or on different care programs. And you know, I have to believe that if we sort of lower the barriers of what might be perceived as competition among the groups, that the entire community will be better served. And then on the other side, you know, on the pharmacological side, which I'm less well-versed in, and so I listen carefully to what our research team is saying and what the FDA is doing and what pharma is organizing to help do is that there seems to be a lot of energy and momentum behind therapeutics. And, you know, there are a couple in particular that have demonstrated an ability to extend life by a certain percentage of time which then broadens the community. We think assistive technology and better knowledge and care are also extending lifespans. As I said, my son is now at 10, 10 years. And with that will come a growing population. And so therefore a, the need for more services in more places, which in all likelihood will create an even greater demand for these therapeutics. If we can get someone's life extended by six months, that could literally be the time frame in which the quote cure happens. And so we're hopeful that we'll continue to move the progress along of the length and the extension of the disease 
you know, when you get diagnosed today, and I don't know where these numbers come from, the, the standard line is the average life expectancy is three to five years, which I've never understood how you could have a 24 month average expectancy right. span. But that being said, I, you know, I'm well aware of many people that have gone beyond five years now. And so hopefully that those numbers will get revised and hopefully at some point this will become a chronic disease, not a fatal disease. And hopefully at some point after that, this will become a preventable disease. So that's how we're thinking about the steps of making it livable while searching for a cure. So you mentioned six months, and it's hard for me not to think about the current fight for uh, approval of Amelix's AMX35, which has been shown in clinical trials. As many listeners are aware, we've talked about it on the show. Uh, it has that ability to extend life to slow progression. You've been active in the We Can't Wait meeting and the uh, testimony before FDA several weeks ago before the advisory committee. As FDA goes into its next phase of deliberation on the new drug application, what do you hope is their takeaway from the, the conversations that the community that you, that Colin Neat have had with either in public settings, what, what do you hope is guiding their deliberations today and, and over the next several weeks? I'm hoping that some combination of common sense and a pledge that the FDA has made to this community about exercising what they deemed regulatory flexibility when it comes to our community, given how clearly our community has risen up and said, if it is safe, we will incur the risk of whether or not it is effective. And part of why it makes perfect sense is that, I you know, hate to use terminology like this, but our community realizes they have little to lose. Obviously, nobody wants to advocate for drugs that could be potentially dangerous. But once a drug has been deemed safe, and in the case of AMX 35, you're talking about two previously approved drugs that have a proud track record of safety. The cocktail combination does not appear to in any way impede that safety. Now the question is, is it effective? We all know how heterogeneous this disease is. So in any form of clinical trial, unless you have great knowledge of what version of ALS the patient population has, and there's no way to know that right now because we, we have so little understanding of the 90% of the community that incurs sporadic onset, you're basically climbing up a hill. AMX 35 may be literally the cure. Who knows? I, I mean, I'm the least least knowledgeable person to speak on this, but it may be the cure for version six of ALS. We don't know what we'll call it then. But in the same way that you wouldn't treat pancreatic cancer, the way you would treat skin cancer, the way you would treat breast cancer, the way you would treat testicular cancer, we believe that there are many different forms of ALS. There's upper motor neuron onset, lower motor neuron onset, bulbar onset, people that can walk but don't have motion in their arms, people that can speak but can't walk, and vice versa. And so using the norms of the standard statistical process to determine whether a drug is effective is almost a false logic when it comes to our community. So once it's safe, and once our community has expressed a willingness to consume a drug that may not be effective, and by the way, even if, it, if it's only effective because of a placebo effect in my mind, that's effective. I'm hoping that the 6-4 vote will be meaningless, you know, coming out of the advisory committee. And, you know, we, we could all spend a whole show talking about the composition of that advisory committee and how those decisions were made and how the question was posed. 
and then how the language was slightly altered when the question was finally posed and how nobody challenged the change in how the question was posed. We could, we could go through all of that, but that's the minutia. That's, that's losing the forest for the trees. And I am hopeful, back to my opening sentence, that the powers that be, having already expressed a desire to bring urgency to this process, having already coined a phrase, regulatory flexibility, will make the, I won't call it an exception, will make the appropriate decision given what our community faces today. It's going to be uh, fascinating to watch and listeners, please continue to check in at ALS.org for opportunities to, to stay engaged and stay informed in the regulatory process going forward. Scott, you mentioned big data and the role that that could play uh, in, in the fight moving forward as you begin your tenure as chair of the board. Talk to me a little bit about your vision, where you see the fight going from here and some of the important steps in the next uh, few months and years. You know, we think about our mission as really three pillars of advocacy, research, and care services. And with the extended life expectancy that we're anticipating, we want to be in more places serving more people. So that's a lot about just looking at the map and understanding where families are underserved today. I live in Palo Alto, California, as I'm fond of saying, it is one of the most resource-rich environments in the world. My son was diagnosed at the Forbes Norris Clinic. It's about a 25-minute drive from our home. A few years later, Stanford opens up a world-class multidisciplinary clinic that's two blocks from our home. But I can't imagine what it's like to be battling this disease without those kinds of resources. So we're going to take a very hard look at where we are underrepresented and underserved in the expectation that our community is going to grow over a period of time and then hopefully shrinks again because we've cured it and this insidious disease goes away. I'm also very big, as I said at the outset, on collaboration. So it's working with the other organizations. Yes, we compete for funding dollars, but there are a whole bunch of things we can be doing better together on a whole number of fronts, including, most importantly right now, advocacy. So the Act for ALS and the $500 million deal that, that Joe Biden signed that has $100 million for five years, and how do we, how do we spend those dollars? Uh, between new drug discovery versus early access programs for our, you know, our, our current community. And doing a better job of getting the research organizations to share information. I mean, I truly don't care where the cure comes from, but I don't want it locked up in a silo somewhere waiting for a university or a pharmaceutical company or an independent researcher to take credit for it. I just want to get it out into the field, tested, proved, and then into people's bodies so that we can rid this world of ALS. Scott, we're talking here at the precipice of ALS Awareness Month. So a lot of people are going to be paying attention to our fight maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time since they took the ice bucket challenge all those years ago. So for folks who maybe aren't living and breathing this every day, what do you want them to know about ALS, about the fight, and about ways that they can contribute to the progress that you've been talking about? I want people to know that this is one of the most devastating diagnoses a human being can, can receive. I want people to know that the support of the community is paramount. I want people to know that the family battling this disease, and that's just not the person living with it, but the caregiver, the children or the parents, whatever it may be, all live this disease and you live it 24 seven. And in the case of my son, who's been alive for 10 years, that's, that's a choice you make at some point when your diaphragm gives out. And that's a choice that I wouldn't wish on anybody, but 
very fortunate that uh, our son decided to get a tracheostomy and has that machine now breathing for him. But the the community support is really important. And, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic now, and a lot of the fundraising that we do is event-based at the community level, you know, across our 39 chapters. And so, you know, even if you don't have a direct relation to the disease, you will meet some of the finest people you would ever hope to encounter if you, you know, chip in and pledge and show up and, and participate with us. And, you know, at the end of the day, like any community that bands together to support its populace, these families really depend on that passion and compassion in grappling with this. It also, I think, it gave me a whole new awareness of humanity and, and what it means, what, what is fundamental to a human being. You know, when I think about the things that my son now has to rely on other people to do for him and how graciously has, he has accepted that reality. And then how normalized that all becomes because those things aren't really important. Things that would be embarrassing in normal walks of life, but they aren't the core essence of you as a human being or what humanity means. And I think we have seen the best instances of people reaching out to help people when it comes to ALS. If there is a silver lining here, it's that everybody around Stephen now fully appreciates what it means to be alive. It's not just a case of, you know, stop and smell the roses every once in a while. It's every time you scratch your face because you have an itch, be thankful you can scratch your face because you have an itch. Truly inspiring to hear that and something I think that we can all take away uh, as we move forward and looking forward to continuing the fight with you, Scott, at the helm. And um, I want to thank you again for your time this week. Jeremy, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to thank our guest this week, Scott Kaufman. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. And please find time to rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with more listeners. We will share links in the show notes for ways to help spread the word during ALS Awareness Month. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect again soon. Bye.